Good morning again, and welcome to GBC. If I don't know you, my name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, and uh, it's a pleasure to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, the last several weeks, if you've been around, you know, uh, and I think this actually makes five weeks now, uh, we've been preaching through a, a series on discipleship. And, and, and normally we preach through books of the Bible, but we do this at this time of year every single year, and our purpose in doing it is uh, to cast vision or, or really to, to recast vision for why this church exists, and that is to make disciples who transform the world. And, and, and Wes started us back at the, the beginning of August in, in the book of Romans, and, and then he preached from Ephesians 4. The, the next week I took us to 1 Corinthians, and then last week West was in 1 Thessalonians. And so it's kind of been, and this is totally inadvertent, we didn't like plan this, but it's been discipleship according to Paul, who, who wrote all of the books that we have preached through in the last four weeks. And, and because I'm not one to rock the boat, uh, we're going to close this series out by looking at 2 Timothy, which happens to be Paul's last contribution to the New Testament. So if you would please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. And, and as you turn there, uh, I want to give us a running start to make sure that we're sort of all on the same page. 2 Timothy, like I just said, it was written by Paul, and, and Paul is at the end of his life. And in fact, as he writes this letter... Paul has been sentenced to death by Nero, who is emperor in Rome at the time. And, and as you'd expect from Paul, if you know anything about him, uh, he is not slowing down here at the end of his life. He's not getting soft. It's, it's all gas, no brakes with Paul. And, and 2 Timothy is this sort of passionate plea from a, an apostle to his disciple. It's Paul writing to a guy named Timothy who Paul discipled. And, and Paul, throughout this letter, is, is, is charging Timothy. He's saying, pass the gospel down. He's saying, don't be swayed by false teachers. He's saying, preach God's word unashamedly. But now, in, in chapter 4, after kind of focusing on Timothy and on the environment in which he was ministering, Paul is going to pause to do a little self-reflection. And, and as we look at these verses, last week, West asked the question, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is, is the life of discipleship, is it worth it? That was a question West asked this week, last week. This week, assuming that the answer is yes, which it is, what I want to do is I want to provide you with the motivation to do it maybe even the inspiration to do it. And it will come in the form of Paul's dying words. So, so that said, I want to read the whole thing. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, and then we're going to walk through each one of these verses, okay? 2 Timothy 4, 6, it starts like this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, 
but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, let's start by, by looking at verse 6. It's, it's basically a summation of Paul's circumstances, and, and I've already mentioned this. They're grim, okay? Look at the, how verse 6 starts. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a, a drink offering. And if you're not familiar with what a drink offering is, when, when Paul says this, he's referring to a ritual from the Old Testament. Okay, sometimes when uh, an offering was being made at the temple, uh, a Jew would take wine and he would pour it over the altar where, where the offering was being made. Now, why would he do that? Well, it was sort of a, a symbolic gesture, and, and to understand, you have to know that wine was a, a symbol of, of joy in the Old Testament. And not only that, wine was not just something you could go to like Kroger and, and pick up off the shelf and buy. Like wine took a lot of time to make. And so pouring the wine over the altar, this was something that, that they would do symbolically to say, not only am I making an offering to the Lord, it was saying, I'm holding nothing back. I'm joyfully giving, offering all that I have to God. I'm doing it happily. And so Paul is using this image from the Old Testament to say, I've given my life. I've offered my life. The sacrifice has been made. If you're familiar with Romans 12, he says, I've lived my life as a sacrifice. And he adds to that here by saying, now I'm already pouring the wine. This is my joy. It's my pleasure to offer myself to the Lord. And then Paul ends verse 6, look back, by saying, the time of my departure has come. And that word translated departure, it is, it's a really neat word. It was a, a sailing word. It carried the image of hoisting an anchor and setting sail, for, for loosing a ship from its moorings to, to set out to sea. So Paul's saying, the time has come. I'm joyfully setting sail, and, and this is implied, but the idea is I'm going somewhere better. Now remember, Paul's facing execution. Okay, really, if, if the historical record that we have is accurate, he's facing not just beheading, but public beheading. Okay, he's already been on trial. He's already been pronounced guilty. He's sitting on death row. And, and what's his outlook? What's his attitude? He doesn't complain about unjust imprisonment. He doesn't worry about being humiliated in front of everybody. He's not preoccupied with how painful death will be. He's not even anxious about all that he's leaving behind. Instead, Paul looks on his impending death and he sees it as a release from the world. It's a release. And I don't want you to misunderstand this is not like an escapist way, as if he, he wants it just all to end. No, that's not it. That's not it. The idea is he knows where he's going. He knows what's next. And so he refers to death as a departure. 
He looks forward, joyfully looks forward to his destination, to heaven. And this gives us something to consider for ourselves. You see, this, this view of death, it can only come from someone who has a proper view of eternity, someone who has a proper view of the life to come. And that understanding, that perspective, it enables us to think of this life in the way that God intended us to think of it. It enables us to think of life in the way that, that Paul is thinking about it here and has thought about it his whole life. It, it enables us to see life's hardships, suffering, the, the valleys that we all inevitably go through. It, it enables us to see those in the right perspective. If you're there now, you can know no matter how long it might seem like it will last, even if it lasts a lifetime, no matter how final your suffering seems, you can know if you're there right now that it will not last forever. There is an ending to suffering. The same is true, by the way, of life's joys, the, the, the mountaintop moments. This perspective enables us to see highs in the proper light. That we can know that, that our, our best life now, it's nothing, nothing compared to eternity with God forever. And so, as you hear me saying that, I want to ask you a question, and as I do, I really want you to be honest. Do you long for heaven? Do you anticipate being with God? Do, do thoughts of eternity with Him forever, do they come to your mind often, ever? Look, if, if I'm honest, I recognize that I live with an emphasis on the here and now, what's right in front of me. So, so much of what I do, so much of what I think, maybe you're in the same boat. It, it just sort of lacks this perspective. It, it lacks this viewpoint. I, I, I think of my present circumstances far too much, and I think of heaven, honestly, far too infrequently. I ignore, or at best, I underestimate the joy of eternity with God. But Paul, he looks at impending execution, and yet he says, I'm ready. I'm ready. And in doing so, he, he reminds us death is just a departure. It's a departure from a, a broken place to a perfect place. And for you and me, if you're a Christian, the other side of death represents eternal life, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. It represents fellowship with God, unhindered, unimpeded by sin, a place where there's no more brokenness or pain or sorrow, no more longings, desires, no more feeling like things aren't what they should be. Heaven is, is something we should look forward to. I'll go even further. Heaven is something that should color every single one of our days. Really, it should impact every moment, highs and lows. And you might be thinking, what does this have to do with discipleship? 
It'll come, I promise. Because you see, having a perspective shaped by heaven, knowing the end that awaits us, this not only provides us with perspective, it inevitably, it has to affect the way that we live today. It'll have a practical effect for the here and now. It certainly did for Paul, right? That's why he's able to write what he writes in verse 7. Look at it again. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, in this verse, instead of looking at his present circumstances, Paul looks back on his life. Okay, this is a retrospective by Paul. And he uses three phrases, each of which, by the way, are drawn from athletics, from sports. And and before we look at each one of them, I want to point out, if you're the type of person, and I know you're out there, that's thought, ah, they always use sports analogies in their sermons. I wish they would talk about literature or art or something else. I wish my pastor was more sophisticated. If you thought that, well, guess what? We're just like Paul. Like, capital A, Apostle Paul. Okay, this whole verse, and the next verse after it, is all about sports. Okay, so that's on you for not playing. Take it up with him. Okay, first, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. Now, now Paul most likely, when he's saying this, has wrestling in mind. His wrestling in mind. This picture here is one of an athlete coming out of a ring having expended all of his energy. You need to think Deion Sanders post-game yesterday, okay? <laughs> Paul, Paul essentially is saying, this life has been a struggle. Okay, this life has required everything from me. I've given it my all. And when you hear that, it doesn't seem shocking, right? Like, like I said, Paul is an apostle. Like, we know the laundry list of things that he's had to persevere through. We, we know the things that Paul, the apostle who wrote half the New Testament, we know the things that he's accomplished. And so when you hear or see him write this, you might be thinking, living your life like it's a fight, like, like you have to expend all of your energy, you might think that's reserved for, for Paul, for 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 people like him, maybe people in vocational ministry, for, for missionaries who live overseas. That's for the, the special Christians. But fighting the good fight, this is something we should all be doing. Because the reality is, and, and, and by the way, this is true whether you realize it or not. Every single day, there are multiple fronts on which we as Christians need to fight. The Bible calls us to fight for godliness at home, at work, at school. The New Testament over and over will tell us to strive for godliness in your relationships, in your mind, in your heart, in your thoughts, and your words. And in each one of these arenas, and by the way, there are even more, there are all sorts of things that we have to contend with. The world out there, the devil, our flesh, 
Wes said this last week, but the Christian life, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's so difficult. And I'll add this to what he said. If your life isn't marked by this kind of exertion, by, by striving, by, by fighting, I'm afraid, I'm afraid you've fallen into spiritual passivity. And, and, and listen, I want to be clear. If that's you, over time, given time, if that's where you stay, you will not stand. You just won't. Spiritual apathy, spiritual retreat, it only leads to defeat, to death, every single time. And it will wreck every part of your life. Trust me, we see it happen way more often than we'd like. And if that seems hard or, or harsh, I'm sorry, it's, it's because it is. A life centered around the gospel, a life focused on discipleship, it requires sacrifice. Inherently, it requires dying to yourself like Jesus died for you. Being a Christian is not easy. It will require everything of you. But I want to encourage you. Paul says that the fight is what? It's good. It's good. In other words, it's worth fighting for. It's time and effort well spent. It's energy directed toward the target. It's doing what God has called us to do. So Paul starts. He said, I, I fought the good fight. Next, look back at verse 7. Paul says, I've finished the race. I've finished the race. Okay, here he, he switches images, okay? He's no longer wrestling. Now he's a long-distance runner who is competing in and who has completed a, a race. And some of you guys know me uh, at least well enough to know that uh, I'm not an athlete, but I am competitive, okay? I like winning. I like cheering for winners. Is Texas back? Probably not. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. Stay tuned. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, I'm, I'm competitive, and, and <laughs> this part of this verse, it's God's word, so, you know, but it's kind of always bugged me. You know why? Because who cares if you finish the race? Shouldn't we want to win the race? Right? Like, when you race people, like, who cares if you finish? You want to be first in line. So, and this is, like, way before humanity got to, like, everyone gets a trophy. So, <laughs> so why is Paul... Why is Paul mentioning that he's finished, completed the race? Why is he just talking about finishing? Acts 20 helps us answer this question. You don't need to turn there. You just need to listen. Okay, speaking to the elders at the church in Ephesus, which, by the way, is the church in which Timothy pastors, Paul says this. He's leaving them. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only. I may finish my course, here it is, that I received from the Lord. Okay, that, that, that phrase, finish my course, it's the same one that he uses here, to complete, to finish the race. Paul is saying, my life is nothing 
unless I finish the race, unless I achieve the purpose that God gave me. Okay, so what's the race that Paul is talking about here? What's, what's the purpose that God gave to Paul? You can talk about specifics, but, but just generally speaking, it's the same commission that he's given all of us. It's the great commission. It's the command, the call that we get in Matthew 28, the last thing that Jesus says before he ascends into heaven to make disciples. So, so what does running the race look like for you? What does it look like for me? The answer is it's different for all of us. Each one of us is running our own race. We have different gifts, different opportunities, different backgrounds, different circumstances we find ourselves in, but each one of us should be striving to finish, to complete the race that God has given us. Each one of us should be striving to make disciples wherever God has us. And and by the way, the best way to ensure that we do that, the best way to be sure that you finish the race, the best way to ensure that you make disciples, here's the secret. You never run alone. You, you never run the race alone. You live in community. If you're a runner, you know you need someone next to you to keep the pace, to set the pace. You need other people. And if you're here and you don't have that, and I'm not talking about friends, people to hang out with, to to call on a Friday night. I'm talking about real community, people who will come alongside of you, people who will challenge and support and encourage you. If you do not have that, that is why our small groups exist. Okay, so, so if you haven't registered yet, now is the time. And I think, it, I think they're closed, technically. <laughs> but Travis doesn't have any authority here. He's too skinny, right? <laughs> he can't tell you no. Sign up today if you have it. We will figure it out, I promise you. And when you do, and even as you do, if you've already signed up, what you need to do when you're in those groups, you need to think, I want to find people to run the race with. I want to find someone to run with. I'll guarantee you, if you do that, you will finish the race that God has given you. Okay, look one more time. Verse 7, Paul concludes by stating, I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Okay, if we understand uh, this statement in the context of sports, which again it is, Paul is telling us that he has run the race, he has fought the fight, and he has done so according to the rules. In other words, what Paul's saying here is he he hadn't deviated from the gospel. He hadn't deviated from from the course that God had given them. He hadn't run off to to something new, to to something novel. When When it got hard, he didn't get off the path. Now, he knew the route he had to run, the ring he needed to fight in, and he stayed there. He stayed there. And for you and me, I I think this is incredibly important. So many of us want something flashy, something brilliant, something new. We want to be part of something big. And a lot of us can kind of 
get distracted. We can get sidetracked chasing movements or, or, or personalities. We can hop from, from church to church or ministry or to ministry chasing relevance or, or sophistication or, or some sort of experience. But most of Christianity, almost all of discipleship, it's just a slow slog. It's steady faithfulness over time. It's consistency. It's a commitment to the same things over and over and over and over. And here's the deal with this. Nobody's going to write a book about how you prioritized attending worship every Sunday. No one's going to write a book about telling the story about how you regularly spent time in your Bible and prayed, about how you loved your neighbor or your coworker or your, your, your parent or your kid even though they've rejected you. No one's going to write a book about you because you've made a, a habit to be in a small group year after year after year after year. Like, no one's going to invite you onto a podcast to tell that story. But if you think it's insignificant... If you think keeping the faith, being consistent, consistency in the ordinary acts of faithfulness, if you think it doesn't matter, Paul is telling you, this is one of the things that I look back on and I'm most proud of. Obedience in, in the everyday, in the ordinary, keeping the faith, these small acts of faithfulness, they're God's extraordinary means, first, of glorifying himself, but also, it's one of God's ways to comfort us and to provide security and joy and life and assurance. So, in looking back over his life, these are the things that Paul says stands out. These are his accomplishments, if you will. He says, I, I, I fought the fight. He says, I, I finished the race. I kept the faith. Wouldn't it be great to look back over your life and to say this, to think this, I fought the fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. Wouldn't it be great to, to, to look back and have no regrets, to, to see nothing undone, to, to, to face death not just with joy, but with satisfaction, contentment, to face death and feel triumphant? even? Let me ask you, if your life ended today, and I know this is sort of a dark hypothetical, but if your life ended today, would you be able to say these things? Would you be able to feel this way? If not, don't you want to? Man, I do. I do too. I can't imagine there's anyone here that doesn't. And so if you're sitting here now and, and you couldn't say what Paul says in verse 7, I, I want you to think, what needs to change? Like, like, what can you do? And we think this way all the time, by the way. This is not a foreign concept to us. If you want to run a marathon in February, you need to start running right now. If you want to retire when you're, whatever, 55 or 60 or 65, like, you've got to start investing and saving now. We, we, we think this way all the time. 
I want you to think, what needs to change? What do I need to do? It could be big things. It could be you need to leave the job that's taking way too much of your time. You're not going to get to the end of your life and think, man, I could have made more money. It might be that you need to leave that relationship that's causing you to sin. It might be that you need to quit that long-standing sinful habit that is destructful and harmful to you and to all the people around you. It might be these big things that you need to change. But more than likely, it's probably just a bunch of small things. The ordinary things I just listed out, reading your Bibles and, and praying, going to church, committing to a small group, investing in the lives of the people around you. Regardless, if you want to be like Paul when you face death, if you want to be able to say to yourself, I fought the fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, think, what do I need to do to get there? You should be thinking, what can I do today to orient my life around the things that God cares about, or around discipleship, or around the church? And I want every person in this room to think that. I don't care how old or young you are. No matter how near or not near death seems, this is a worthwhile thing to think about it. What needs to change? What do you need to add in? What do you need to do less of? Whatever it is, it's worth it, isn't it? Isn't it? And we've already covered some of our motivation in this, but Paul goes even further in verse eight. Look at it. We're gonna close here. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, in this verse, Paul looks forward to a crown of righteousness. He says it's laid up. That means it's stored for him. Now, this crown, again, staying within the framework of athletics, it was, it was more like a, a wreath. Okay, it was not like a crown that a king would wear. Uh, usually, it was sort of made of garland, and it would be given to an athlete who was victorious in whatever endeavor he had. It was, it was a high honor. Okay? You need to think like, uh, like getting a championship ring today. Now, the only problem with the crown that he's talking about here, of course, is that eventually that crown, the crown of garland that was given to a victor, it would wither. Right? It would die. And as Paul refers to it, he knows this. And he's making a contrast between that and, and the crown that waits for him in heaven. A crown that would never die or, or fade away. This is the crown of righteousness he's talking about it. And he says, God gives it to all of those who are faithful to him in this life. This is Paul's motivation. This has been Paul's motivation. This is where Paul has joy as life nears its ends. This is his confidence, his security. You see, and I mentioned this earlier, even though there's uncertainty with Timothy, how's he going to turn out? With the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, all the churches that Paul planted, think of all he was responsible for, all he would be leaving behind. And yet still Paul has security. He's not hanging on. He's got confidence. At the end of verse 8, he shares this joy, this assurance with Timothy. Really, he gives us the reason why he's confident. He knows that he has passed 
on all that he knows, all that he is to Timothy. And Paul reminds Timothy of this. He says, this crown is not just waiting for me, Paul, the apostle, the big dog. This crown is waiting for you, Timothy. And it's waiting for all who trust and serve and live for Jesus. It's, it's, it's waiting for all of us who fight the fight, who run the race, who keep the faith. So if this has been hard, I, I want you to be encouraged. If you're a Christian, this is what's ahead for you. This is what's ahead for me. There's a, a prize that waits for you. And not only you, but everyone that we collectively share the gospel with, everyone that you disciple, everyone that you invest in, there's a crown waiting for all of us. And the best part is this. As you fight, as you struggle, as you strive, as you run, as you keep the faith, as you labor in the dust, as you make disciples, in all your effort, you remember the victory has already been won. It is not contingent on you or me or us. It was one, the second that Jesus rose from the grave. And so you fight, not as someone unsure of the outcome. Uh, You run, not as someone uncertain of their standing. No, you fight, you run as a victor. And, And not because of your effort, because of his Paul tells you there's a a crown waiting for you, and you didn't earn it. This is not a crown of your righteousness. This is a crown of Jesus' righteousness, and if you belong to him, it's a sure thing. It's yours. And because of this, because of the wonderful truth of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when the time comes, you can face death joyfully, triumphantly, But until then, Paul charges Timothy all throughout 2 Timothy and here. He's charging you and me. He says, step in the gap. Take the baton and pass it on. Keep the fire burning. He's saying, make disciples. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself and your purposes to us in your word, Lord. And I I pray that as we uh, leave this place, Lord, I I pray not only that we would be motivated and inspired, Lord, to to be engaged in your kingdom work, Lord, but I I pray that we would be enabled by your spirit, Lord, that where we lack confidence, you would provide it to us in your spirit. Where we lack giftedness, Lord, your spirit would overcome our deficiencies and our weaknesses. And Lord, I I pray that as we do all of these things, uh, Lord, I, I pray that we would have Uh, just a a better image and picture, Lord, of what you did for us on the cross and your son Jesus, Lord. Uh, Lord, I I pray that as we do all of these things, we would uh, not just glorify you, Lord, but that we would be able uh, to experience what it looks like to have joy and and purpose in this life. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit to enable us in all these things. I pray that he would. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.